Welcome back to America on Trial. I'm your host, Josh Hammer. Our brand new podcast is bringing you all the news every day that you need to get through your day and feel more informed as we approach this unprecedented litigation and lawfare-filled presidential election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So without further ado, let's get into Around the Horn. Not a ton has happened in the past 24 hours, so I thought I would take this around the horn time to just zoom out and reset the picture as to where everything stands. As of now, it looks like Alvin Bragg in New York City is finishing some of the, some of the last touches of his pre-trial preparation. All signs are currently pointing towards that New York City prosecution, the allegations, the in, indictments of business fraud as it pertains to the so-called hush money payments with Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen, that is what these signs are currently pointing to as being the first prosecution of the four against Trump to finally get out of the starting gate. As we've discussed over the past couple of shows, there is a, a possible perjury and a possible plea deal that Alvin Bragg is now trying to reach and reportedly is close to reaching with Alan Weisselberg, the longtime CFO of the Trump organization there. So his pretrial witnesses and, and interviews and all the various pretrial prep that goes into a prosecution, all of that is, is starting to wrap up there. He is going to get off the finish line sooner rather than later. And Part of the reason why we can feel fairly certain at this point that that is going to be the first of the four criminal prosecutions against Trump to launch is the fact that we have this delay in Washington, D.C. So Tanya Chukin, the very anti-Trump judge there in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, has formally removed March 4th. That was the date that was set for the Trump trial there in Washington, D.C. This is perhaps the most headline-grabbing, the most flashy of the four Trump criminal prosecutions. This is the one where Merrick Garland's appointed special counsel, Jack Smith, is indicting President Trump for all of his conduct in the aftermath of the 2020 election, up to and very much including January 6, 2021. But we are patiently waiting for the three-judge panel on the D.C. Court of Appeals to issue their ruling on the sweeping question of presidential immunity and whether the, quote, executive power of which the vesting clause of Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the Constitution speaks. We're waiting for this three-judge panel to issue their ruling as to whether presidential immunity in this full of an effect will preclude will preclude a prosecution from going forward based on underlying actions that, in this case, Donald Trump took as president of the United States. And that could take a while. I mean, we really have no sense necessarily. Look, as someone who clerked on the, on the Fifth Circuit and, and has a little bit of an insight as to how this goes behind the scenes there, these things can take a while. These judges are, are, are busy folks. You also have to think about just the basic minutiae of law clerks in various chambers of the judges themselves having to communicate. They have to all be on the same page when it comes to the written opinions and this and that. Certainly for a case like this, there was going to be exorbitant pressure from the prosecutor, from Jack Smith, to get an expedited ruling. In this case, Jack Smith obviously wants a ruling that the president is not immune, putting on just my pure prediction hat. I think that he is, is going to get that. But then even if he does get that, Trump is going to inevitably appeal that to the Supreme Court. So in any event, that's where things stand in D.C., and that's why we can feel relatively confident that the Alvin Bragg case in New York City is going to be the first one 
out of the starting gate here. As far as the two other prosecutions against Donald Trump, things are, are, are trickling along in Florida in the classified documents case. There are some upcoming hearings this this upcoming Monday and Tuesday, as we discussed on the show yesterday, when it comes to Classified Information Procedures Act, a somewhat arcane congressional statute from the early 1980s that details how classified information can be introduced at trial without undermining national security while simultaneously not undermining due process concerns and, for that matter, Sixth Amendment concerns, the right to confront the witnesses who are testifying against you at a criminal trial. These are the things that Congress attempted to do in the Classified Information Procedures Act from the early 1980s. We're going to get some hearings on that next week in Florida. And then all pretrial motions are going to be due in the classified documents case, according to my legal calendar, on Thursday, February 22nd. That case is expected to launch. The trial is expected to launch right now on May 20th, but there is still a lot. There is still a lot that could go wrong for either side, but especially for the prosecution until then, operating under the assumption, and I think this is a reasonable assumption, that the prosecution would like a verdict to come in before the November election. That obviously is what Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and the Democrat media complex more generally, that obviously is what they're trying to do here. They are trying to secure as many convictions as possible before the the November 2024 election, but we'll see. Again, this is complex stuff in the classified documents case. Basically, I mean, really in all these cases, we're dealing with legal questions that we have frankly never had before. But here in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, the mere fact that there is so much classified information that could be potentially exposed at trial, like I said, you have due process concerns, you have Sixth Amendment concerns, it's going to take a while to sort out. And it would not surprise me in the slightest if that May 20th start date for the Mar-a-Lago trial with Judge Aileen Cannon, if that were even pushed back further. Georgia, we did a deep dive on the show yesterday. Suffice to say that what's happening right now in Georgia is just a, a total light the turd on fire poop show. There's really no other way to say it. You have Fonnie Willis being subpoenaed by Congressman Jim Jordan on the House Judiciary Committee when it comes to possible misallocation of taxpayer funds. You have a separate special committee of the Georgia State Senate that is subpoenaing Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade when it comes to their own allegations of misallocation of taxpayer funds. You have this upcoming hearing in less than two weeks now on February 15th before the judge in the case, Fulton County, Georgia Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee. That is going to be the hearing. It's an evidentiary hearing that was initially brought by Michael Roman, the Republican operative who's a co-defendant in the case, and he is getting this hearing and he's already been able to demonstrate, and Fonnie Willis has admitted that she had the affair with Nathan Wade there. So this hearing coming up on February 15th is going to ideally decide right then and there. I mean, it'll take a little time, but we're ho- we'll hopefully get some, some good back and forth on that date as to whether Fonnie Willis is even fit to hear this case in the first place there. As of right now, the Georgia case, as we've noted on the show numerous times, is not even scheduled to start until August. And if this stuff with Fonnie Willis continues to take longer, who knows if they might even have to move it out of Fulton County. That is something that Judge Scott McAfee could potentially decide in that case. If they even have to move it out of Fulton County, this thing could take even longer still. So Trump is looking like an awfully lucky man there in Georgia. 
And then finally, just resetting the scene in New York City as well. Trump is obviously going to appeal this ridiculous $83.3 million verdict when it comes to the defamation case with E. Jean Carroll. We're waiting on any kind of legal details pertaining to that. I think that Trump is in good shape there. This is in federal court, not state court. And there is a compelling argument that the $65 million in punitive damages is actually unconstitutional under a long line of Supreme Court cases that tries to limit punitive damages as possibly being violative of the 14th Amendment's due process clause, very much including a major 1996 Supreme Court case called BMW versus Gore. And then finally, in the other New York City case, this civil fraud case brought by this vicious and malicious New York Attorney General Tish James. We are expecting within the next week or two that verdict, that ruling from Justice Arthur Ngoron. Unfortunately for Donald Trump, it is not really a question as to whether Justice Ngoron is going to find him guilty in this case or liable. I should technically say it's a civil case, not a criminal case, so liable, not guilty. It's not really a question as to whether Justin Gorin is, is, is going to find the Trump organization liable for operating a quote-unquote fraudulent organization as nonsensical and, frankly, harrowing and chilling as that verdict will be. Rather, the only question is what the actual damages assessment is going to be in that case. But we will have to cross that bridge when we get to it. Again, Donald Trump's going to get his appeal in, in that case for sure there. But th this week, I, I, I want to really focus as much as possible on what is clearly the the big legal event of of this week, and that's going to be our deep dive for today, probably the deep dive on some of our forthcoming shows this week as well. And that is the huge, huge oral, oral argument at the United States Supreme Court this Thursday, in the case known as Trump versus Anderson. This is the case out of Colorado, out of the Colorado Supreme Court. This is the case where the Colorado Supreme Court ruled, ruled on its own that Donald Trump was ineligible for the ballot due to the insurrection clause, due to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The Secretary of State of Maine unilaterally decided the same for herself although that ruling was put on pause by a judge there in the state of Maine pending the resolution of this case at the Supreme Court. So the idea here is that oral argument is this Thursday, and under the Supreme Court's so-called rocket docket, they're probably going to get a faster-than-usual ruling in this case, simply given the stakes, simply given the political timeliness. The court is in no way immune to that sort of thing. They probably are going to take all of that into all of that into, into consideration, and they will get us a ruling there in this case sooner rather than later. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And. Let's start with the text. That's what we do on the show. We start with the, we start with the relevant text. So this is a constitutional question. There's actually a statutory question in Colorado as well, which the Trump reply brief filed at the court on Monday got into as well. We'll focus for our show's purposes on the constitutional question because it really is the important question here. So section three of the 14th Amendment. And again, just zoom out for a second here. Recall that the 14th Amendment... I cannot emphasize the point enough. The, the 14th Amendment is the second of the three Reconstruction Amendments. The 13th Amendment, if you've seen the, the great movie with Daniel Day-Lewis called Lincoln, then you saw the whole debate over the 13th Amendment and the ratification of the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. And then the 15th Amendment has to do with the franchise, with the right to vote. The 14th Amendment is the one that was ultimately ratified in 1868. It was led by folks like Congressman John Bigham of Ohio, Senator Jacob Howard of Michigan on the Senate Judiciary Committee. It is the most sweeping and in many ways the most controversial of all of the amendments in the United States Constitution. Most of the constitutional litigation when it comes to the 14th Amendment has to do with Section 1. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment has to do with all the clauses that you are probably familiar with. That is where the due process clause is. That is where the equal protection clause is. That is how you get cases like Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case, where the absolutely horrific and sophomoric opinion in that case, written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, was kind of a mealy-mouthed attempt to amalgamize, to combine the due process and equal protection clause, wholly unpersuasive and I would even argue legally frivolous, but that's a conversation for another day. Other clauses there in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment would include the Citizenship Clause, and this is the debate over constitutionally mandated birthright citizenship. And then you have the Privileges or Immunities Clause as well, which was uh, effectively read out of the Constitution by a couple of early 1870s cases called the Slaughterhouse Cases and the lesser-known case called Crookshank. There is a bevy of originalist scholarship in the legal academy trying to resuscitate and bring back to life the privileges or immunities clause. There are are a lot of writings from some of the current Supreme Court justices trying to do that as well. The main citation for that would be Justice Clarence Thomas's lengthy and in many ways persuasive concurrence from the 2010 Second Amendment case, McDonald versus Chicago. In any event... The, our litigation here in Trump versus Anderson has to do with Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, not Section 1, but Section 3. And again, recall this was ratified in 1868, just a few years after Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox in Virginia. With that in mind, here's the text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Quote, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, 
or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So that's, that's a mouthful, but what's going on here is that this is the means by which leftist lawfare activists across the country are attempting to get Donald Trump off the ballot. The argument here implicitly relies on a number of things. If you're listening to what I was saying, I'll, I'll just read the first sentence again. Quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office civil and military under the United States. So what is not in there? For, these are the categories that shall be excluded from potentially holding future office if they have, quote, engaged in insurrection or given aid or comfort. Those are the, those are the categories. What do you notice is not in there? Well, first of all, president of the United States is not in there. Uh, elector is in there. Elector of president and vice president is in there. The president and vice president themselves are not in it. Rather, what these legal eagles have to say, and I'm being deeply satirical and sarcastic there, they have to argue, rather, that the president is subsumed under the broader umbrella category of, quote, officer of the United States. This is totally nonsensical. There was a compelling op-ed by former U.S. Attorney General Michael Mukasey in the Wall Street Journal last September arguing that this entire argument falls on those grounds alone. You don't need to go any further there. Officer of the United States is a term of art used throughout the Constitution. It is used in the impeachment clause. We made reference to that on a previous show when we were talking about the House Republicans' attempted impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas. The term officer of the United States, as it is typically used, refers to someone who is not elected, not a president or vice president, not these president pro tempore of the Senate, not the Speaker of the House. Rather, it refers to someone who is appointed. And sure enough, in the reply brief that was filed by the Trump legal team on Monday afternoon, by the way, as an aside, the, the counsel of record and then the man who will be arguing this case on behalf of the former president at the United States Supreme Court this Thursday is someone I personally know very well. His name is Jonathan Mitchell. He is the former Solicitor General of Texas, one of the unambiguously smartest lawyers, most brilliant legal minds in the country. I, I've known Jonathan for over a decade. We went to the same law school. We've collaborated on some behind-the-scenes stuff over the years as well. We've spoken on, on the same panel together at, at some conferences and whatnot there. So Donald Trump is in very, very capable hands with Jonathan Mitchell being his lead lawyer in both his reply and actually arguing at the Supreme Court. Jonathan Mitchell, among his other legal accomplishments, is really the, the brains behind the private right of action, which was the SB8 law in Texas before the end of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision, which where you had not a state being able to enforce the law, but only private citizens and therefore being able to evade judicial review. You had that funny line where Justice Elena Kagan at argument referred to Jonathan Mitchell as, quote, some genius and he is. So Donald Trump is in very, very good hands here. And in Jonathan Mitchell's brief filed on Monday on behalf of Donald Trump, which I've read and I actually think is very good, he spends more time 
on this topic, on the argument that the president is not a, quote, officer of the United States under the constitutional language. He spends more time on this than on any other topic. And I think that that is time well spent because you just can't have it any other way where you have the term officer of the United States that is used time and time again throughout the Constitution, which it is. It's used in the impeachment clause. It's, it's used in the commissions clause. It's, it, it's used over and over again. But again, it, it, it does not refer based on the clean on the clear and obvious implications of how else it is used in the constitution does not refer to someone who is elected like a president and the idea that a president more generally would be subsumed under this broader officer of the united states label is totally nonsensical if you're going to talk about the president you're going to just say the president that is the way that people draft things when they are talking about the highest office in the land there are any number of other reasons why this argument is frivolous as well first of all trump did not quote engage an insurrection. That is the actual means. Even if you think that Donald Trump was an officer of the United States, which he is not because the president is an elected office, then you still have to conclude that he, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion or, quote, gave aid or comfort to the enemies of the republic. This only makes sense if you are an absolutely bat crap, crazy, MSNBC-watching, left-wing, lunatic political junkie. He did not engage in insurrection or rebellion, for God's sake. He encouraged his supporters there at the Ellipsis, at the Capitol, on January 6, 2021, to peacefully make themselves heard. That is the definition of free speech in America. He could not possibly foresee that there were some people that would traipse into the Capitol— very, very, very few of the people who showed up there to the Capitol on January 6, 2021 were even armed in the first place. Another point that John the Mitchell makes in his excellent reply brief, the very fact that there was virtually no one armed in the first place, that single factual data point alone really evinces the lie of the so-called insurrection charge. But, you know, totally, totally insane, first of all. Uh, again, it's just a basic matter to even think to compare the events of January 6, 2021 to the insurrection that the draftsman of the 14th Amendment had in mind there, which would obviously be the Civil War itself. Totally crazy stuff. Another reason why this argument just, just totally and completely fails there is that the, the folks who are trying to disqualify Trump from the ballot basically have to argue that this section of the Constitution, that Section 3, is what lawyers refer to as so-called self-executing, meaning that it doesn't really matter what Congress has actually passed as a matter of statute or legislation. Rather, the mere fact that what was ratified there in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that that becomes a law in and of itself. But that's not how constitutional law works as a basic proposition. Rather, when you have broad terms like this, it necessarily follows, and originalists in the legal economy are fairly unified on this point, it logically follows that you need some sort of detailed explication and some minute details that are pointed out by Congress. And, and sure enough, that is what you have from Chief Justice Salmon Chase, who was writing in a case called Griffin's case in 1869 that was only one year after the 14th Amendment was ratified, Justice Salmon Chase in Griffin's case basically says exactly that. He basically says that, oh, where you have broad language like this, it is necessarily incumbent upon Congress to then pass more detailed legislation that would explain how this is possibly going to be implemented in practice. 
Well, the only relevant statute that anyone can point to here that has kind of sort of spoken to this question it would be the Insurrection Act, which does not really directly speak to the actual question here. So that is not going to pass muster as well. So, uh, you know, I, I could go on here, but I would really encourage you guys to pay attention to the argument there on Thursday at the Supreme Court. There are major, major constitutional questions involved here. We are certainly going to be paying very, very close attention here to it on America on trial. I feel relatively confident, honestly, about this one, that Donald Trump is going to be okay. Just a friendly reminder, if you've enjoyed listening to America on Trial, our brand new podcast covering the 2024 presidential election from a strictly legal perspective, go ahead and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd be very grateful for that. And then leave us a comment as well. We always go ahead and read them, and we look forward to hearing from you, the listener. So for now, I'm Josh Hammer, and I'll be right back tomorrow. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.